jarring, isn't it? Do we really live in a wonderful world? Is that something we can truly say? I question it to myself, you know, every time um, I see a pigeon in a park or I see an ibis in Bankstown. Uh, But more seriously, right, as believers, there's a deeper question, I think, even behind a video like that, isn't there? It's not simply whether we live in a wonderful world, but it's also whether we live in a well-run world, right? Whether we live in a well-run world. See, when there are breakdowns in the home, when pandemics strike, when loved ones pass, or when life just seems unendingly difficult, you know, sure, sure we know that life just isn't what it's meant to be. But can we say with confidence that our world is well run? And it's a serious question, right? But that's the question Job has in the front of his mind as we reach the end of this book. In some ways, for Job, it's not even a question at this point. It's pretty much a belief. Job believes he lives in a terribly run world. Like the last time we heard from Job, which you know, was a few weeks back now, we saw Job cry out to God for justice. Let me read a few verses for us just so that we get a refresher on how Job is coping. Right? Job, back in chapter 30, verse 16, he describes God like clothing to him. Right? Not because um, he provides warmth, but because of the way that God is binding his neck. Right? Graphic imagery. In verses 20 to 21 of that same chapter, Job wishes that God would answer. And all God seems to do to Job is he's just standing there before him and he's just gazing at him. And throughout chapter 31, Job is reminding God that he doesn't deserve anything of what's happened to him. Right? He says to God, look, I've never looked lustfully at any woman. I've always acted justly when there have been grievances against me. I've always been generous with the poor and marginalized. I've never put my trust in wealth. I've never rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune. I've repented at even every concealed sin. See, Job is truly the man that we've met all the way back in chapter 1 of this book. Job is blameless. He is upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. But at this particular point, As Job, having heard all the accusations being brought to him, he's wearied, he's battered, and at this point he cries out in desperation. And so at the end of his speech in chapter 31, verse 35, Job closes by signing an affidavit of sorts. And he demands that God appear before him. And he says, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And so, friends, this is where we are. This is where we now are. Job feels that God has fallen asleep at the wheel and running the universe. And so he demands an explanation. And surprisingly, very surprisingly, God does appear in a storm, no less. The very thing that Job was fearful of that he would be crushed by back in chapter 9. And yet, he isn't crushed. And even more incredibly, God addresses him directly. And so today, we're going to be spending our time exploring this unexpected, beautifully poetic, yet powerful first speech of God to Job. 
And so just for a bit of a roadmap with where we're headed, we've got two broad points. Yeah, the first point is seeing God's universe. And the second point is hearing God's perspective. Seeing God's universe, hearing God's perspective. Um, why wouldn't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we really want to hear you speak to us today. Would you search our hearts? Would you test us? Would you challenge us? And would you lead us in the way everlasting? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, let's have a look at our first point, seeing God's universe. Seeing God's universe. Now, as you heard um, Pastor Pete reading the Bible out for us, or, in, uh, or later as you read the Bible passage yourself, you're gonna, you would have heard so many questions being asked of Job. And really, today, we're only looking at the first half of the questions. that God's going to keep going. There's a lot. And so to help us wrestle with all that God is asking Job to consider, I want us to focus on you know, a couple of themes that pop up again and again throughout this first speech. Yeah? The first theme I think that God keeps going back to is He wants Job and us to see the order in His universe. Yeah? He wants us and Job to see the order in His universe. And the second thing I think He wants Job to particularly see, and He comes back time and time again to, is the wildness and danger in His universe. Yeah? So we're going to look at those two themes, the order and then the wildness and danger of the universe. Let's begin with the order of the universe from some of what um, God says. Um, let's read uh, 38 verse 4. Now read with me on the slide. Where were you, Job? God speaking to Job. When I lay the earth's foundation, tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who, met, uh, who stretched the measuring line across it? Or, or what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. See, friends, to God, what's he saying? To God, the universe is one ordered building project, right? Now, I know a few of you are in the process of maybe thinking about knocking down and rebuilding a home. Maybe you've just completed that project yourself. See, God does that too, but not just for a single dwelling, but for the entire universe. The universe's building project is from God. And, and, and this project has a foundation that was laid. This project needed a surveyor and his measuring line to be precise. This project requires a footing and a cornerstone to ensure the base of the project is stable and firm. Right? We've all seen those, you know, those devastating building projects on the news where builders have taken shortcuts and it's left homeowners in ruins. God's building project isn't like that. Because he's the architect, because he's the surveyor, because he's the builder, the universe is a building built well. Right? To quote one writer, because the universe is built by God, it is a solid, secure, robust affair, replete with beauty and enduring majesty. Right? When this project was complete, what do we see? The morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. But that's not all we see about the order in God's universe from God's first speech, right? Even when things seem disorderly, right? When things seem to just make no sense, in reality, they are still ordered and purposed by God. Now, how do we see that? Well, in God's universe, what does He do? He sends life-giving and life-producing water to places where there are no people, to places uninhabited, to give life to barren and dry lands, in verse 25 to 26. 
To, to us, that makes no sense to send rain to areas where nobody lives. And yet it is important to God that even those places are satisfied and produce life. In God's universe, lightning is not completely random. Right? Lightning bolts, um, they might seem all over the place and random to us, but lightning bolts in verse 35 of chapter 28, what do they do? They report to God one by one. And then they are sent on their way to the locations that He directs. In God's universe, in chapter 39, verse 5, the wild donkey is free and is given the wasteland and the salt flats, places that are typically uh, miserable and and, and death-inducing for us. But God providentially sends the donkey there, not to die, but to be free, to laugh and to live. That makes no sense to us. In God's universe... And this is a real fun part of the passage of his speech. The ostrich, in chapter 39, verse 13, right? The ostrich might be without understanding. She might be unmindful, leaving her eggs in the ground for others to trample all over. She may not be endowed with wisdom. But when she runs the way that God has made her to run, she laughs at the slowness of the horse and his rider. See, friends, not everything is neatly understood in God's universe, yeah? And while we only just, we've only just looked at a small sample of what God says to Job, what do we see? We see that even in disorder, there is order. Even when things seem out of whack, there is structure and purpose. Why? Because God is the architect. He is the planner. He is the surveyor. He is the builder. And we are in His world. But there's a second theme from this first speech about God's universe. Not that it's just ordered, um, but that it is wild and dangerous. Yeah, It is wild and dangerous. Um, God, from a wild and dangerous storm, no less, takes Job to see all the different wild creatures in his kingdom. What do we see? In, In God's universe, in chapter 38, verse 39, we meet the wild, ravenous lioness. And she must tear apart and rip to shreds the flesh and blood of her stalked prey, not for fun, but to feed her cubs and to prevent them from starving. It's violent, it's bloody, and we might be terrified to watch something like that, but for God, He provides the lioness this food in order to care for her young. In God's universe, we can't just simply bring a wild ox from chapter 39, verse 9, to the family farm, You can't just walk up to the wild ox, you know, uh, pat it, feed it, or or even put a harness on its head so that it willingly just lowers its head and follows your lead and uses all its strength and power to do the heavy lifting you want him to do. You would be stupid to trust it to do that job. It would be suicidal to even try. In God's universe, the war horse in 39 verse 19 is strong and without fear. He snorts, his snorts strike terror. And and he charges into battle with extreme confidence, itching to face the enemy. He's a creature that loves any destructive frenzy, carrying weapons all about him. He's bloodthirsty for its next battle. See, friends, God's universe is not all about a serene and peaceful nature documentary. Danger and wildness sits within the realm of God's rule, not beyond it. 
And so how, how does God think about all this wildness and danger and, and craziness? Is he uncomfortable with it? Is he disturbed by it? Perhaps surprisingly to you, and surprising to me, he's not at all uncomfortable or disturbed by it. He's not at all. Right, read um, Job 38, 8 to 11 with me, yeah? God talking about the sea, who, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb. When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. See, church, in the Bible, and even among ancient cultures, the sea is this symbol of disorder. It's a symbol of chaos and danger and wildness and death. It's a terrifying unknown, right? We see this symbolism in, in books like Revelation, the book of Revelation, right? We read that when the new heaven and earth finally comes, there will be no more sea. Now, that obviously doesn't mean, you know, there's no more beach and no more water views. But it means that disorder and chaos and death that that sea symbolizes, that will finally be gone. It will be done away with. But until then, what does God make of this sea? What does God make of this chaos? Well, God sees the chaos as completely a part of his universe. It's such a natural part of his universe that, that God compares it like a baby. Right? Did you notice? For this wild and chaotic sea, what, 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 how does God treat it? Well, we see that this sea bursts forth from the womb like a child. It's wrapped in garments and it has limits placed on it like a cradle for a newborn. Now, this doesn't mean that God loves chaos and death and destruction like a parent loves a child or a baby. But what we are meant to see, what we're meant to understand from, from, from the poetry that's here is that in our universe, in God's universe, the chaos and wildness is no more threatening to him that a newborn is to their parents. Yeah? The chaos is nothing. Right? The chaos is in his universe. It's a part of it. And what he does is God fixes limits on it. Like an immovable cliff breaks the fiercest of ocean waves, God commands to what is ordinarily dangerous, wild, and chaotic, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. That's what God says. This far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. See, friends, in God's universe, the wild and dangerous exist. And they have their limits. And so God said a lot in this first speech, right? And there's more to it, obviously. And hopefully you wrestled with some of that in your groups this last week. But as we've seen God's universe with him, and as Job has seen God's universe with him, let's now turn to our second point, hearing God's perspective, yeah? Hearing God's perspective. Um, when I first began, uh, when I first started a Bible college, the first, the first couple of semesters were pretty rough. And the biggest reason why it was rough was because I had pretty much no idea how to write an essay. Right? I had not written a single essay in my economics degree, and I was five years removed from any form of study, let alone, you know, types of study that involved never-ending piles of readings, and this foreign skill called essay writing. And so what I would do at the start, when I had no idea, was, you know, I would just read stuff, and I would dump everything I read about the essay question into a Word document, make it somewhat coherent, and then submit it. That's kind of what I did as an essay. That was my essay. 
Right? And in my feedback um, on, on, on some of my paragraphs, one particular lecturer would often comment next to a paragraph. He would say, Tom, that's interesting, uh, but that's not relevant at all. Right? In that's interesting, but that's not relevant at all. And he also graciously passed me on that essay, which was really kind of him. But the reason why I mentioned this is that's maybe how, you're, how you'd comment to God's first speech to Job. Right? Maybe you're thinking, wow, um, you know, God, that's profound, everything you've said. You know, beautiful imagery, beautiful poetry. It's kind of cool to be led on a nature walk with you in your universe. Uh, but what does that have anything to do with the answers that Job is seeking from you? It's really interesting, but it's not all that relevant, I think. And so the question is, why does God show all this to Job? Why? Why does he do it this way? Why isn't he just more direct? Perhaps it's as some people think. Maybe um, God does this to numb Job's suffering, right? It's like, you know, Job is hurting, so why don't I take him on a nature walk um, and let me, let me show him the beauty of this world so that his pain is eased? You know, some people think that. Or maybe um, it's, it's what other people think, that, that God is just doing one massive resume flex to force Job into submission by showing just how powerful he is. God tells us it's neither of those reasons. Right, look with me at chapter 38, verse 2, because the answer is there. Um, God tells Job and comes before Job and says to him, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Yeah? Words without knowledge. See, friends, why does God show all of this to Job? It's because Job speaks words without knowledge. He, he's spoken without proper insight, without perspective, and that's where he stepped wrong. He, he hasn't sinned against God. But God sees his cries and demands for justice the way a physicist might feel about me speaking about the area of physics, sincere but clueless. The reason why God takes him on this natural tour in his universe is because he speaks as one without knowledge. His understanding is too focused, it's too limited. And so God shows him this wider world that he's a part of. As he does that, it's almost like God is asking Job, you know, stop looking at everything so zoomed in. Zoom out from your bubble. Zoom out from your perspective. And isn't that what Job needs? Right? Throughout this entire book, as we've been going chapter by chapter, uh, 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 speech by speech, we've seen that as wise as Job is, his wisdom and his perspective, it hasn't helped resolve anything for him, right? His friend's wisdom have made everything worse. Elihu's perspective that we heard from last week and his understanding, that hasn't been much help either. And so God invites Job to see the universe as it actually is. To see it the way that he sees it. Complex and broad, not simple and narrow. And so God invites Job to zoom out. So what is it about Job's and maybe even our perspective that, that's just so zoomed in, yeah? What about our perspective is so zoomed in? Let's go back to those two themes that we looked at in God's universe uh, from, the, from these passages, the order and the wildness and danger of it, right? Let's start back with order, right? So why does God specifically speak about the orderliness of his universe to Job? Well, 
from Job's perspective, you've got to remember, right? How, how is Job feeling after all of this has taken place? He feels that his world is disordered. He feels his world is messed up, doesn't he? Remember back to chapter 3, when Job first laments about his suffering. What does he say? He begins to curse the day of his birth. He screams at God that he no longer wants light and life. He wants to trade that all for darkness and death. For Job, from everything that he's seen, from everything that he's experienced, creation and life has become cursed, it's become broken. It's become destructive and it's become disordered. And so God, here in his first speech, comes and he begins to unravel that. He begins to loosen that tightly knotted view that Job now has of his creation and his universe. And he says, I'm going to reverse that because it's not true. Even the things that look disorderly on the surface isn't disordered like Job thinks, right? And God is saying, gaze at the world around you, Job. I'm not about the anarchy and disorder that you would believe. In me, you find an order and a purpose to my universe beyond your wildest comprehension. It might not make sense to you why I send water jars to uninhabited places, or why lightning strikes where it does, or why a donkey finds freedom and joy in the most deserted of places, or why a silly ostrich was made to run faster than the most sophisticated weapon and speediest transport for thousands of years in human history. But it does to me. I sustain everything in a complex order that you cannot even fathom. I am am creator, I am sustainer, I am preserver of things beyond your reach and control. And so if it is true of the universe, God is saying, it is certainly true for Job's life and situation. And it is certainly true for ourselves. Even though we might not see it and completely comprehend the complexity behind it, God is encouraging Job and us to zoom out to trust the one who orders the universe and even his present life. So what about the wild and dangerous then, yeah? What about Job's perspective and our perspective needs zooming out there? Well, remember back to chapter 1. What's Job life like? How's it described? Well, it's almost rhythmic, right? It's almost programmed. What would Job do each morning? He would get up very early, we read, and what he would do, he he would habitually offer a burnt offering to God, just in case one of his children sinned. And while that's all we read, I think we're meant to understand that if Job's day started that schedule, that rhythmic, that programmed, his entire day probably followed a similar pattern. Job's life probably ran like clockwork. Job's life was also one of the farm, right? He, he, used to, uh, he was so used to all his sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys as a wealthy man. So in a way, his farm animals are like one big illustration of the way that Job lived his life. His life was controlled. You could even say his life was tamed. That's the life he prefers and enjoys. And now that he's lost it, he's demanding God tell him what he has done to deserve this. Now, I can completely understand, Job, maybe you can too. I'll often have a list of things that I want to do in a day on my home internet page, my to-do list, and if for whatever reason, you know, I have to do something else that doesn't, isn't on my list, what I'll do, I'm the type of guy that will just add it to the list anyway so that I can cross it off later in the day. We want to know what our days will look like tomorrow. We don't want life to be so crazy that we don't know what we expect each time we wake up. And thankfully, life is Far more like that than it's not, right? But there are days, there are seasons, there are moments where life isn't always that controlled. 
Job's seen that. We know that. We may have even experienced that life is not always so programmed, so clockwork, so farm-like. Life is wild. And so God, from a wild and dangerous storm, no less, invites Job to zoom out from his life on the farm, his life of stability and rhythm and control, and show him that the universe extends far beyond those borders. His universe is one of predator-devouring prey, of powerful oxen that won't come under human control, of proud war horses that love the smell of battle and of the chaotic sea. And all of that entirely submits to his rule. God wants Job to zoom out and see the wild and dangerous are a part of the complex running and design of the real world. And while it threatens Job's life and while it threatens our life, it doesn't threaten God. You might know the kid's song. He's got the whole world in his hand. Right? He's got the whole world in his hand, right? Job 38 to 39 shows Job and ourselves that this also includes the wild and dangerous. Not just the neat and tidy. Not just the controlled and scheduled. The true and living God in this real world is the God of the storm. See, friends, Job sees God too simply. It's part of why God says that he speaks words without knowledge. See, Job wants justice. He wants answers to why he suffered the way that he does so he can defend himself against God's accusations. He's confident that God is asleep at the wheel in the running of the universe, but those conclusions are all too zoomed in. And so through this nature tour, God replies to him, Job, I hear you. I do. You and your friends feel that I run this universe only through a lens of justice. And because you've suffered, your friends think you've sinned and you believe I've failed. But God says, let me show you the scope and complexity of the world that I govern. I order things and consider things that if it weren't for me showing it to you just now, you wouldn't even comprehend. The way you think is such a zoomed-in view of me, Job. I'm not a prisoner to how you understand justice. The things that terrify you with their power and what you might consider unjust are as harmless to me as a newborn baby is to you. Your view of justice, similar to your friends, while it's true, it's too narrow in my kingdom. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that God couldn't care less about justice. He cares about justice, right? He does. Nor does it mean that justice has absolutely nothing to do with the way God runs his world. Because it, it does. It has, everything, it has everything to do with how he runs the world. But God's speech to Job, and we'll hear much more about this next week, tells us that Job believes justice to be the only criteria. You hear that? The only criteria God thinks about in his well-run world. And that's just not true. There's so much more. See, friends, while Job wants God as a judge in a courtroom, God meets him as the much larger storm and king who rules a complex universe and invites Job to withdraw his lawsuit. Now that God has opened his eyes and asks him to now to speak with knowledge. God's words aren't like my essay. They're not just interesting and irrelevant. He deliberately says what Job needs to hear. And he invites him to speak knowledge and keep trusting him. And so, friends, as we reach the end of the first speech, having seen God's universe, having heard God's perspective, the obvious question we need to ask is, well, how does Job respond? 
Does Job now speak rightly? Does Job now speak with knowledge? Does he keep trusting him? Well, the answer is both yes and no, I think. See, how does Job respond? He says, I am worthy, I am unworthy, in Job 40, 4-5. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. He begins well, I think. Right? He says, I'm unworthy. Right? That's a sign of humility. But then after that, he, he says, how can I reply? And then he just doesn't. In fact, while God wants him to speak, while God wants him to answer, back in chapter 38, verse 3, he refuses. He actually physically puts his hand over his mouth to cover his mouth to avoid speaking anymore. It's a sign of refusing to speak, right? He's already spoken once, he says. And so he's said what he has to say. And it's almost like he's sticking now to his point of view. He refuses to speak rightly. In our CG this week, I put out the question, if you, were Job, if you put yourself in Job's shoes, could you trust God after he said all of this? And one person boldly said, you know, probably not. And I get that. I sympathize with that response. God's stern, isn't he? His questions are pointed, even though there are sarcastic and humorous bits in it. God doesn't answer the way Job hopes. And, And he gives him question after question after question. And while the questions aren't to condemn him, but, but more so that he sees more of the universe so that Job actually has a chance to broaden his understanding. It's still very full on, right? For Job to trust God, he needs to hear more. And he will hear more, much more. Again, next week. But the truth of the matter is while it was gracious for God to appear to Job in the storm, especially when everybody around him said that God would never do such a thing for Job, Our invitation, as God says, will you trust me? Our invitation takes a very different form, doesn't it? See, friends, this gracious coming of God to Job, it anticipates a greater gracious coming of God to man. But this time, God would not come in the form of a storm. But the creator and sustainer of the universe would come as a man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He would speak to a terribly violent and wild storm that stirs the chaotic sea to nearly drown the boat that he and his disciples were on. And he would declare to the storm, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. He says, be still. But Jesus doesn't simply calm a storm. He would go on to face the ultimate of storms and he would do it willingly. By dying on the cross as a substitute in our place, he faced the ultimate storm of eternal justice with the ultimate waves of sin and death and was swept away for what we owe for our wrongdoing. And so it's from the cross, not a storm, that God, the King of the universe, cries out to you and to I, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Friends, the one who holds the whole world in his hand also did not abandon us in our ultimate storm, but entered into it for us and in our place. He will not abandon you. He will never abandon you. 
And so would we keep trusting him, especially when life does not seem wonderful or well run? Amen. Um, friends, there's a discussion question that's going to uh, uh, on the screen. Um, if you'd like to uh, keep discussing in your groups after, um, but uh, keep gathering and enjoy gathering with one another.